0: I bring you, dear saints, to our second installment in the effort to communicate what we've called the Upper Room Christian Assembly Catechism. We've done that to align ourselves historically with what some other church traditions have exercised themselves in. The title, however, of these teachings is Roots of Righteousness. And I have for you the second introductory message. I do believe that we will finish up the introductory section of these teachings. Last time we ministered on this title, we gave you the explanation of the concept of catechism and began to sort of set the ground for where we're going. This afternoon, I want to speak to you about the idea of being grounded and settled I will inform you that some of the catechal works over the years of church history have included an introductory section similar to what I am presenting to you. This prolegomena within which an apologetic or an explanation as to why the catechal effort is indeed necessary and critical and very much a part of God's calling. One such Puritan minister who provides this for us, this introductory chapter prior to getting into the details of the catechism or the confession that he follows and preaches from in order to indeed ground God's sheep in God's holy word. One such Puritan is the Puritan Thomas Watson. If you like dates, then you'll like to know that his dates are from 1620 to 1686. And Thomas Watson, among other texts that he works with by which to introduce and to support and to set before our spirits the necessity of the catechal work, which again is simply sounding down the Word of God, echoing the truths of Scripture in a way that is effectively communicated to our hearts. Thomas Watson provides Colossians chapter 1, and verses 21 through 24. And for our purposes, this will serve as our textual basis and launching point for this second introductory message. Let me read that verse, or those verses to you. Paul writes, "...and you that were sometimes alienated or estranged, and enemies, or as some translations have it, hostile..." In your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Verse 23. If ye continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which we have heard and which was preached... To every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church." If we were to reflect backwards from what we just read, we would observe some of these following points. The Apostle Paul, as a minister of God's Word, following the example of his Savior, says that he suffers many things in order to minister to the church. And the ministry that he has in mind, he states, is preaching the Word of God to as many people as God calls us to minister that Word to. In his case, as an apostle, he traveled all around the Mediterranean world. In my case, as a pastor, I'm more locally situated. But nonetheless, we see the principle working itself out in Paul's life. And the reason why he said that we will suffer these afflictions, and we will somewhat replicate, at least in principle, what our Savior has done for His body, the church, Paul, following, as I'm saying, Jesus' example, willingly takes on this struggle in order to ground and settle the believer in the faith of Jesus Christ. To help them to become stable. Because there's an underlying narrative to every human life that is ministered to, and that narrative history includes the fact that there was a time when you were estranged to the faith. You were estranged to your God. More than estranged, you were hostile in your mind. And that was manifest through an array of wicked works. And in need, therefore, we were in need of being reconciled. And the preaching ministry is not just a ministry of telling you what you already know. That is not what church was designed to fulfill That does little work with the idea that every one of us was once alienated and we were hostile to God. There is a great work that needs to be done. There is a soul that needs to be fully delivered from all of the remaining elements of the evil one that still find themselves lurking in darkened quarters of the kingdom that El Shaddai now rules if indeed we are born again from the center throne. That was something that John Bunyan argued and preached. And it's in keeping with what Paul is saying here. And so Thomas Watson, for example, other Puritans, John Flavel, another man by the name of Thomas Boston, a Scottish minister, a little bit post-Puritan era, not entirely People would argue whether he's a Puritan or not, I'm not digressing into that, but in a subsequent generation from some of these other men, these men would defend the systematic preaching of God's Word, the laying out of the basics of the Christian faith. They did not think that if it included presenting or filling your cups with the milk of God's Word, that it was not interesting enough, not new enough, not exciting enough so that we would fail of keeping your attention. To the contrary, they would argue that there is a need to have a strong Christian life. There is a need to be grounded and settled in the faith. And that can only come through preaching. And it's a preaching that is characterized by a man who gives his heart to it. He gives his life to it, like the Apostle Paul here speaks of. And so we have the Apostle Paul making this argument. We have Thomas Watson and others making this argument. But it's beautiful for my heart to observe that even when we step outside of those teaching instruments known as either the Three Forms of Unity or the Westminster Standards or the hundreds of other, literally hundreds of other catechol exercises, even when we step out of that particular discipline of ministry, we find that God's servants doing other work recognize the need of what is spoken of in Colossians chapter 1. It reminds me of Paul's statement that all ministry is a gift to God's people. Whether it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas, we need not only listen to the Puritans, but any one of God's ministers that the Lord has used to help us to understand His Word more perfectly is a gift to our lives. And so I want to pass on to you some statements from A.W. Tozer. As I was preparing these messages, working with the concept of Roots of Righteousness, knowing that I wanted to choose that, using this agricultural terminology that is in a more biblical idiom than simply saying this is the Upper Room Christian Assembly Catechism. When I was thinking of my approach I recall that there was a short essay that I had read years ago from A.W. Tozer, quoting from Proverbs chapter 12 on the very title itself that I'm using, the words of the title, that is, Roots of Righteousness. I'd like you to hear some remarks from Tozer out of that short and very edifying essay. For Tozer, it could have served... As an introduction to a catechol exercise, he does have a booklet called Knowledge of the Holy. I don't know if he taught those messages consecutively in real time in ministry. I'm not sure of that. But I know there's a compilation of messages from Tozer and many of his books that are published. You know, I don't know that he put them together. You know, Crossway and others have put these things together over time. But you're understanding what I'm saying. You can be, you can be effectively categorized by Tozer's writings. I'm just using that as an example. He was Christian Missionary in Alliance, you know, he wasn't a Presbyterian, he wasn't per se Reformed. But listen to Tozer's statements as we are building the case for why it is so necessary, believer, so necessary that we do teach in this fashion. Tozer says, a tree can weather almost any storm if its root is sound. But when the fig tree, which our Lord cursed, dried up from the roots, it immediately withered away. A church that is soundly rooted cannot be destroyed, but nothing can save a church whose root is dried up. No stimulation, no advertising campaigns, no gifts of money, and no beautiful edifice can bring back life to the rootless tree. These words are like music and inspiration to a minister's heart who desires the health and strength of the church, which is made up of individual lives that are strong. I've read you Paul's statement from Colossians talking about the need to preach in order to ground and settle God's sheep. I've mentioned that the Puritans introduce their efforts to categorize their churches with similar thoughts. And then they enter into a very methodical, very structured approach from first principles into deeper matters in the preaching of the faith, so that believers can be grounded, they can grow a root system. You know yourselves in the natural world, if you want to take a cutting from a plant, and you want to root it, you would likely make use of a rooting hormone. Simply what you're doing is you're setting in motion. You're adding energy and power to the potentiality that is in that root. And so if God, by His grace, has taken you as a wild tree or a wild olive, and He's cut you out of the world, and He's seeking to graft you into the faith there is a need for your roots to be stimulated. The very word hormone comes from a Greek word which means to set in motion. And what I'm saying is you put that powder or oil or whatever form this rooting hormone comes in in order to stimulate the cells to begin to divide and begin to produce the roots that potentially can grow and propagate. And what I'm sharing with you is the Word of God, the preaching of the Word of God is that hormone, that spiritual hormone, that stimulation to your own lives, so that you can become a rooted and grounded saint. Another quotation from this essay of Tozier's says, One marked difference between the faith of the fathers, think here, at least as far back as the Puritan era, and even and another sort of classic instantiation of meaningful spirituality on a somewhat widely demonstrated basis. We could speak of the patristic era. All of these statements would have caveats to them. I understand that, but it still holds as far as I've stated it. Let me read this again. Please listen. One marked difference between the faith of our Father's as conceived by the fathers, and the same faith as understood and lived by their children, that is the likes of us who attend churches, and think that we are in some sort of continuity with the fathers. We would like to think we're in some sort of continuity with Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Menno Simons and whomever else, Wesley and Whitfield and the Puritans and even Augustine and even Athanasius, and of course Paul and Peter, But he's saying one marked difference between the faith of the fathers as they conceived of it and their children is that the fathers were concerned with the root of the matter, while their present day descendants seem concerned only with the fruit. And I think that this stems from a very shallow understanding of Jesus' remarks in Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount. There is a trivial nearly cliched, instinctive orientation that you find within the Christian churches that basically feels like if you see something relatively good in somebody's life, then there's nothing more to say. Because you're going to know them by their fruits. And if you see something relatively good on the external, something they say or they're nice or they do a few things well, then that's all we can observe. That's the end of what we can critique but I'd like you to think about the roots. And I'd like you to listen more carefully to what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth forth not good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Notice with me that last phrase in the 20th verse of Matthew 7 clearly states that each of these trees bears fruit. As obvious as that is, that is still very key to put your mind on. When you go to each of these trees, there is fruit on these trees. And it seems to be that there's this odd disconnect between the natural world that we are at least somewhat familiar with our observations in the natural world and what we bring to our spiritual application of the very teaching that Jesus is giving. In other words, you can go to many trees, many types of vegetation, and you can find fruit that looks really, really good on the external. Externally, it looks very good. Sometimes it looks just like things you would want to eat. But it is not good because it can't bring forth good fruit if the root system is not the roots of a good tree. You see, there are fruits of the Spirit as well as phony substitutes that look like fruit, but they have artificial flavors. And they're made of humanly processed substances and chemicals and the like. No, that's an important point. I'll give you some examples in a moment right out of the Word of God, but I want to emphasize initially here that there are fruits that come from a root system that is supernatural and established by God's grace and is working with the sap and the teaching of God's Word and the supply of the Spirit. And these are distinctly, as we've said, fruits of the Spirit. But there are many religious substitutes for this sort of thing. Just like in the natural world, whether we're talking about what man produces and, provi- and offers as his substitutes for God's creation, which that is common, but even in the natural world, do you understand that you can't just go to a tree or a plant and see lovely looking fruit and decide that it'll be fine to eat because by your fruit, by its fruit, you will know them and it looks like, you know, this fruit would be worth eating. Take, for example, three plants that you really need to have some discernment on. Have you heard of nightshade plants? I'm sure you have, most of you. Tomatoes, eggplants, chili peppers, that's all. they're all in the nightshade plant category. But there's a plant known as deadly nightshade. It has a beautiful green berry that'll ripen into a black-looking berry. And if you mistake that nightshade plant for some other edible berries that are similar, you will get very sick or possibly die from the tropane alkaloids. If you apply Jesus' teaching from Matthew 7 that is built on the natural world, you will bring those observations with you to the spiritual world. You will see that what I'm driving at is, as Tozer said, the fathers used to pay attention to the roots, not just the fruit. They would trace that plant And look at that fruit that might look like something edible or something that would be a good fruit, but they trace that fruit back to its branches, back to its trunk, down to the roots, because they know whatever's in that fruit is coming from the roots. They would get to the root of the matter. And they would know, as Jesus said, if this root system is drawing off of anything but Jesus Christ, it can't be good fruit no matter how enticing or convincing it may look. Do you know that there are elderberries that will kill you? Because they are high in cyanide. There is one type of elderberry named Sambucus nigra that is non-toxic, but botanists will teach you, which is where I learned these things, I don't have them memorized, that your standard elderberry with a black, blue, or red berry had better be cooked before you eat it right off of the bush because they're high in cyanide. The lily of the valley is even mentioned in Scripture. It has an orange-red berry. There are many things in this world that God has provided that bear fruit, that look tasty, and they're nicely shaped, and they look healthy, and they look good. And you might say that Well, an evil plant or a plant that could hurt me can't produce good-looking fruit. But, of course, you know you would be wrong about that. And take the lily of the valley. It has this beautiful orange-red berry. If you eat it, you may have a go into cardiac arrest. So you need to understand, with these various plants, I'm only giving you three from the berry family. There'd be others that fit into other fruit-bearing plants, that's just from the berry family that you need to learn. Like, I can enjoy the beautiful white lily flower or the bell flowers or whatever of the lily of the valley, but I better not think that this fruit is something that God wants me to eat. God wants me to be all excited about. I'm going to give you a couple of examples that show religious activity, but clearly point out that if this activity is not rooted, in righteousness, then it isn't acceptable to God. Take wisdom for an example. Wisdom is certainly a fruit of the Spirit. It is certainly something that is a positive characteristic in the Christian life. But the Bible says if you seem to have a version of wisdom, here's someone you say, you know, it seems like that person has wisdom. And maybe you are right. There's fruit. And you say, well, if they have wisdom then it must be good because they couldn't have wisdom if it was a bad tree. You couldn't understand the word in the way that you do. You couldn't get some things right if it was a bad tree. But you see, this is getting to why we need to be catechized. Because we pay attention to the fruit and just think if we see something positive then everything's fine. And we don't go down to the root of the matter. Sometimes there's roots of bitterness that are producing that supposed wisdom. And the Bible talks about that. It says, if you have envying and strife in your hearts, don't praise this display of wisdom. Don't speak against the truth of the matter. This wisdom is not from above. It is earthly, sensual, demonic. Isn't that interesting? Because it isn't denying that there is no fruit of wisdom. There is wisdom that is being manifest But the entirety of that display is also in a juice of envy and strife. And a discerning person realizes that's not the fruit that God's talking about. James says prior to pointing out that false fruit, he says, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Who is truly wise? What is the true fruit of the Spirit? You go down to the roots of that individual's life, when that life is tested, when it is presented with a storm and a trial, and you find out whether it's where it's grounded, where it's settled. And James says, this one will show, in whatever circumstances this one finds him or herself in, they will show out of a good life, conversation means life, out of a good life, his works with meekness. Of wisdom meekness of wisdom so there you have a example of where you can't just look at wisdom biblical knowledge having understanding about a range of practical matters as evidence of the fruit that is produced by the Spirit of God you have to look to the root of the matter how about fasting this will be the only other example I give you and You would be able to think of others on your own. Prayer, giving, forms that claim to be love. But take fasting. Well, you know the account. It's found in Luke chapter 18. What we have is a religious individual. He's a Pharisee, but he's a synagogue goer. He has a religious aura about him. He has holiness as one of his characteristics. None of that is deniable. This man goes to pray like others, and leaving aside the manifestation of pride, which is important in our discussion, but what I want to zero in on is I want you to see that the Pharisee fasts twice in the week. Would you be given to think, well, I don't know, I mean, this individually fasts twice in the week. I mean, I, I think I've figured it out. I mean, what can I say? The, the, the fruit is there. So how's Brother John doing? Well, he's fasting. Oh, okay, he's fine. How's Sister, you know, Sally doing? Well, she fasts and prays. She spends a lot of time in prayer. Okay, so this must be fine. You know, the Puritans never fell for that sort of stuff. Puritan churches weren't like some of our churches. They were much more orderly and not under the authorship of that which brings confusion in every evil work. In other words, I'm saying they were decent and in order because they were established through the principles of sound teaching in God's Word. And these folks were catechized. They were taught systematically God's Word to establish roots of righteousness, like Tozer is talking about. Remember what our sort of point is that we're working on is the distinction between the faith of our fathers and the sort of churches they had and... Their children is we pay attention to the fruit and we say, well, somebody's fasting, somebody's giving, somebody's, you know, being nice to me. Okay. Well, praise the Lord. Do you look in the, into the root system? Do you trace that fruit back to the branches of that individual life, back to the bark, back to the trunk, down into the roots, down into the soil and ask yourself, what is being drawn up into that life and what comes out as well? That matters, brothers and sisters. Matter to Jesus because he said, It doesn't matter if you fast and give money and all the rest of it. You don't go back to your house justified when your roots are drawing this poison from your father, the devil, is what he said of the Pharisees. Your root system is from your father, the devil. Now, let me tie this in at this very moment. we'll be emphasizing this as one of our main points in this introductory teaching. I just said that as it relates to the Pharisees. Do you not understand that the point of what Paul is stating to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1, that is our text, is that all of us come from that orientation. We all were alienated and enemies to God. And you probably were brought up in a church when you were. Or you had some religious notion of who God is in your head. Before you had your salvation experience, or maybe even after you had your salvation experience, but you never stopped being alienated, estranged, and an enemy to the things of God. So what I'm saying is, you might think this only applies to the Pharisees. No, it applies to all of us, is the point of why we need to be taught the Word, so that we can examine our own root system, and find out whether these are roots of righteousness, or do we have phony, processed, substitute fruit with artificial flavors? We have to go down to the roots, is what I'm saying. Jesus never meant. All you do is just look at some of the nice stuff you do on the outside, your smiles, your nice mannerisms, your fastings, your singing, your music, your prayers. You go to the prayer meeting, whatever. They wouldn't look at just the fruit. They would get down to the root of the matter. Just as the prophet did in Isaiah chapter 58, where he makes the point that the mere act of fasting is not acceptable before the eyes of God unless it's attached to a root system of proper motives. Amen? Amen? Here we have somebody fasting. You go to their door. You view their life as a tree. What do you see? Beautiful fruit of fasting. Nice and ripe and plump and shiny. Something like an elderberry, maybe. They're not as big, of course, or at least in the fruit I'm envisioning in my head right now as I speak. But what I'm trying to say is, they have the fruit of fasting. And modern Christianity shows up at that door and says, well, he's a really good Christian, or she's a sister in the Lord. How do you know? Well, you know, she fasts. And I'm not talking about being judgmental, but we have to work through these things. I'm saying, you know, well, she fasts. It's almost perceived as being judgmental. If you say, may I examine your root system? Can I trace this fruit back through the branches, into the trunk, down to the root system, and see what you're sucking up in your life? You know what I mean? What are you drawing from? What what motivates you? You see, Jesus never said just because it looks like fruit, tastes like fruit, that it fulfills the dictum that an evil tree cannot bring forth good fruit. And so if it looks like it's good, it's got to be a good tree. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is all about the roots. You should think of fruit along these lines. I'll give you an acrostic. When you think of fruit, the fruit that Jesus is speaking about that is being taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, you should think of something like this. Fruit means from roots, you internalize the scriptures. That's the fruit that Jesus has in mind. Fruit that has its existence only in this way. From roots, from roots of righteousness, sound doctrine, regeneration, reconciliation, being in the vine, having the sap of the Holy Spirit. From roots, you internalize the scriptures and that is where that fruit comes from that is in contradistinction to that which we're speaking about which is not interested in the root system just in the external things and that can be expressed in this way fake righteousness unrecognized in the scales there is a fake righteousness that is going to be found wanting in the scales when God tests what we produce in our lives, whether or not it's the genuine fruit that He's looking for. There's a fake righteousness that will not be unrecognized. It's unacceptable. It's unworthy. It's not in the Scriptures, and therefore it won't be accepted in the scales of God's scrutiny and assessment And the Bible instructs us to follow God's example and to test the fruits of ourselves, most importantly, but then also to understand where genuine fruit is among God's people so that we learn what a brother indeed and or a sister indeed truly is, so that we can help one another, we can exhort one another, we can admonish one another, we can rebuke one another as is necessary so that Maybe in doing so, you give that person some root hormone so that they can get some real, true spiritual activity and actually grow some roots of righteousness, which nobody can grow on their own. It's only by the grace of God. You were alienated and hostile to God. That's in the context of Paul saying, I need to preach to you to ground you and get a root system of spiritual development bearing fruit onto holiness. We need this root system to be the product of you internalizing the scriptures, not this fake righteousness that God will not recognize. I have another quotation from Tozer. Tozer says, Today we write the biographies of such as these, the fathers in their lives, you know, the Puritans in their lives and so on, and other remarkable figures in church history, we write the biographies of such as these and celebrate their fruit. But the tendency is to ignore the root out of which the fruit sprang. The root of righteousness yieldeth fruit, said the wise man in Proverbs 12, 12. Our fathers looked well to the root of the tree and were willing to wait with patience for the fruit to appear. We demand the fruit immediately even though the root may be weak and knobby or missing altogether. I hope you're understanding something of what I'm saying here. I'm, I'm wanting to validate from the Scriptures, and I'm going to kind of complete this circle in just a moment as it relates to Matthew 7. I want you to know that Jesus never taught that you just look at the external visual characteristic or activity or religious exercise, you know, that external fruit, and that's all you can do. He's basically told you, if it looks good, you can't say otherwise. Because a good tree or a good-looking fruit means it's got to be a good tree. Because uh, only a good tree can bring forth good fruit. you follow what I'm saying? No, he's actually saying, in spite of it looking like it's good, it isn't. It's impossible for it to be good if it doesn't have the right root system. And you need to be discerning about the roots in your own life. It's impossible for you to be a good Christian unless you're regenerate. That's what I told this man yesterday who was wearing a cross. I said, does that indicate that you're a Christian? He said, well, no, I'm Catholic. And I said, well, I was also brought up in the Catholic church. And I said, I wasn't regenerate. I wasn't born again. It's impossible for you to bring forth fruit on the holiness unless you are drawing up into your soul the teachings of the Word of God. That's why Paul preached. That's why the Puritans preached. That's why members in their churches gathered on a regular basis to hear the preached Word, not to debate it, not to analyze it, not to just have some religious exercise, but in order for their root system to be developed and to be stimulated. Would you kindly reflect with me back into Matthew chapter 7. Would you kindly remember with me that I have read to you verses 18 through 20, which speaks about evil fruit and good fruit and good trees and bad trees, and then it ends in verse 20 and says, Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. On your own time, I want you to meditate on that. I want you to read verse 20 and think about what those words are saying and think about what it means to your heart in terms of discernment and what Jesus is saying to your life. And then I want you to read the very next verses. And I want you to hear that after Jesus said, By their fruits you shall know them, He then says, Not every one that seems to have good fruit is going to be accepted by Jesus Christ. Not everyone that externally seems to have good fruit, that says, Lord, Lord, that casts out demons, that prophesies in His name, that does many wonderful things, He says, I'm going to go down to the root of the matter. To the shock of their soul, I'm going to go down to the root of the matter. I'm gonna bypass their fruit. I'm gonna bypass their Lord, Lord, their praise the Lord, their hymns and their songs, their church attendance, their, their tithing, their giving, their expressions of love and compassion, their casting out of demons, they're laying hands on the sick, their tongue speaking, their prayer meetings, their fastings. I'm gonna bypass it. And I'm gonna say, deep down inside, you never knew me. Whatever is manifesting here in this external religious thing that is being presented, whether it's a confession, Lord, Lord, or whether it's a casting out of a demon, however you got there, it's phony. It's not from the Spirit of God. It's not the fruit that God is looking for. Dear brothers and sisters, seeing the connection of verses 21 through verse 23 with what proceeds in verses 18 through 20 of Matthew 7 will settle the matter because Jesus barely has the words out of his mouth when he says, you're going to know them by their fruits. And then he says, and let me give you an example. Here's an example of an external fruit-like activity that is unacceptable to God. And those fruits are not what God is looking for. So what that implies is, if you're going to know them by their fruits, you have to do more than just look at, Lord, Lord, Casting out demons, well, they cast out demons. Well, they prophesy. Well, they speak in tongues. Well, they go to prayer meetings. Well, they do this. Jesus is validating, saying, I'm not saying just the external. I'm saying if you look into those fruits and you trace them back to their roots, you're going to discover it can't possibly be good because the motive is wrong. It doesn't matter what it looks like. If it's alienated from God, if it's hostile to God's truth and word, then it's not the fruit that God is looking for. And many, many people are going to feel like they have fruit because everyone else is telling them they do. But they don't. And a Puritan would never tell you that you do. Because our fathers would go back to the roots and say, Oh, we need to know this fruit. And we can't possibly know the fruit unless we go down to the root of the matter. What's your doctrine? What's your belief system? What do you believe, brother, sister, about this issue? Well, I just believe that the Lord wants me to move in with this woman. And, you know, and it's we're going to have a great ministry. And it's going to be a real blessing to God's children. And we have, you know, orphanages rise out of that effort. I'm not thinking of anything specific. You pick your own story. Or we're gonna have we're gonna use psychedelics to connect you to God. And I had this vision and this dream, and it's a fruit, and and, and I got saved. I was at a you know I was a, an al- a drug addict, and I went to prison, and then you know I I came to know Jesus, and then I experimented with psychedelics, and I had this religious experience. We're gonna put it on YouTube and tell everybody about it, and people watched it like, wow, well, he must be a Christian, and look at the fruit of his life, look at all the changes that occurred to him, all the things that are different a Puritan would have been. What does that matter? There's poison berries out there that will kill you yeah. if you don't know how to discern. You go to the root of the matter and you say that can't possibly be the fruit of the Holy Spirit because it's connected to a poison in the root system. It's a wisdom that is not from above. It's earthly, sensual, devilish. One final remark from Tozier. He says, much that passes for Christianity today is the brief, bright effort of the severed branch to bring forth its fruit in its season. But the deep laws of life are against it. Preoccupation with appearances and a corresponding neglect of the out-of-sight root of true spiritual life are prophetic signs which go unheeded. Immediate results are all that matter proofs of present success without a thought of next week or next year. Religious pragmatism is running wild among the Orthodox. Truth is whatever works. If it gets results, it's good. There is but one test for the religious leader. Success. Everything is forgiven him except apparent failure. I hope you've benefited from that exercise which I grant was presented in some degree of an admonishment or an admonitory tone. But all of it flows from that kernel observation that Tozer makes, which is this, I've already read it. A church that is soundly rooted cannot be destroyed. That is my pastoral hope and desire, my pastoral commitment is to... Aid this church so it can stand the storms and the tests in your individual lives, whatever's yet to come into your experience and on this earth. Because as Tosa says, nothing can save a church whose root is dried up. And isn't that in agreement with the Word of God? Think of the passages which speak of establishing a root system and the benefits of that root system. Take Psalm 1, for example, We read that there is one who delights in the word of God. And he's in the word day and night. We read of this one being like a tree planted by the rivers of water. The fruit is brought forth in its season. Its leaf does not wither. Whatever it does prospers. That's the picture that we all desire. That's the picture of a root system, isn't it? It's not just the fruit, is it? It's fruit tied to a good root system, and that's what it starts with. It's planted by that river. And that pertains to the root system, not immediately the fruit. It's planted by the river of God's Word. What I'm saying is you don't have any of that which is spoken of in Psalm 1 unless the Word of God is taught to your souls. Do you understand? You don't go to church. You don't just have a religious affinity with the concept of God you don't just have a few Bible verses memorized you don't just listen to hymns on car drives you don't just attend a prayer meeting you don't just support missions and establish a root system we don't just go to church and get entertained and get a root system the Bible says you're meditating in that word day and night and a lot of what you're being taught day and night they're just basics if the Lord allows us to go the distance that I hope to today in this introductory message, we'll do a little work with Colossians chapter 1, verses 21-23 through 23, as we started with and cover a couple of basics that are pertinent. Another passage that speaks of the image of being rooted and strong and having a good foundation, of course, is Matthew 7 itself, the very next section after what we've already been looking at. And Jesus says... There is a life that will be strong. When the rain descends, the floods come, the winds blow and beat on that house, it will not fall. That's what we all desire. We want to be strong in time of trial and test and temptation. We want to be strong when God shakes this earth yet once more. We want to stand. And the only way we will, brothers and sisters, if we have a good foundation, a good root system, And I want to remind you of what Jesus said is absolutely necessary for us to arrive at that point. He says you have to hear His sayings. You have to hear His sayings. That's why we come to church. You come here to hear God's sayings, to hear us preach the sayings of God. Even during the week, if we have fellowship time, we should not necessarily always, but... You know, those that fear the Lord, they speak often one to another about the things of the Lord, speaking about the sayings. Not to demonstrate their acumen and scriptural theological knowledge, but to help one another to establish a root system that's going to help us to stand throughout the week. So let's think a little bit more about what is required to appreciate and posture ourselves properly before the preached word, we who need this root system. Well, first of all, we learn from Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and following. We need to know where we have come from if we're ever going to be truly grounded, rooted, and settled. So here's the first question for all of your lives and all of the believers' lives or all the church attenders' lives. Lives. The question is real simple. Do you need to be grounded? Do you need to be grounded? I'm sure there was a season in my life, possibly even after getting saved, I'm not as clear about that as I am about just my life in general, when I sort of viewed myself in some sense kind of invincible, you know, in some general sense, just living life, you know, like a teenager would. You know, I had the answers, I was going to do okay. I was, I could make it and make my way and believe in myself and work through problems and, and all the rest of it. I didn't view myself as I needed to be grounded. Like I'm going to get blown around like a chaff, like a tumbleweed. I'm just going to get blown around by life if I don't get myself grounded. You know, young people don't understand how grounded you need to get. You know, if you love a young person, you're going to be in the effort of trying to help them, trying to stimulate their... Knowledge and their perceptions of I need to get myself grounded because as I grow up, I better also grow down because the taller you are, the harder you fall unless you get grounded in roots of righteousness. So the first question I have for all of God's people who come to this assembly or even those who hear this teaching is do you need to be grounded? Not everyone recognizes that because they're so easily given to their sinful patterns, they so comfortably live in their sinful patterns that, that in other words, they're not taking seriously the need to develop roots of righteousness. They don't realize that the wicked are like the troubled sea. It cannot rest. There's no peace, says the Lord to the wicked. That never loses its relevance to my ears. Because while I'm on this journey, I either choose righteousness or I choose unrighteousness, and that's wickedness of some form or another. And anything that tends toward unrighteousness is not going to bring me peace. It's not going to ground me. I'm like, a, I'm like in the sea, going up and down. I have no stability, I'm being blown about by every wind of doctrine. In other words, you're either going to get grounded in roots of righteousness, or you're going to be like the... Troubled sea that cannot rest. You're going to be churned around till you're sick in your stomach. Why is that so? Why is this just not just an idea that I'm pulling out of the Bible, which is true enough on its own two feet? Why is it so relevant? It is so relevant because of what we're working with in the context that speaks of our need to be grounded and settled in the faith because the Bible says you were alienated and hostile to God. Every one of us. Every one of us. And those who have just been born naturally, the younger children, we need to communicate to them some meaningful message to their spirit that you're in need of getting yourself grounded and rooted in Jesus Christ. Or your life is going to be like the troubled sea filled with experiences that make your soul sick because you're estranged from God. You're hostile to God. Here's another question. Why do we meet need to be rooted? Did you start your life in the right spot? Did you start your life in good ground? It's amazing to me how often I have heard, even from churchgoers, the words that, well, I always believed in God. I always loved God. When the Bible says nobody seeks God, when the Bible says nobody comes to Jesus except the Father that sent Him draws Him. When the Bible says there's nobody good. What I'm underscoring here is, again, drawing out the implications of what Paul says prior to advocating and emphasizing the need to preach this word even, even when it requires suffering and, and, and the kind of diligence that a minister needs to give to to make these points and to press these issues home. What he's saying, what the context is, is that we were all estranged. In other words, you weren't in the right ground. Do you understand? It would be so wonderful if you could really get that across to churchgoers. That you're not in the right ground unless it's distinctly in submission to the Word of God and the ministry and the hormonal work of God's Spirit stimulating you to grow in the right place. You're not in the right place to start with. It's not possible. We all have to find this holy ground. We have to find a good church. We have to find good preaching. Those who just go to church and never thought about, am I in the right spot? They will not stand the tests. And it's real simple. Why? They have all kinds of external fruit. They don't have roots of righteousness. They will not make it. And if that ever is going to change, it's because they're going to have to get reconciled to God and repent of their phony religious fruit like the Pharisees and get themselves rooted in the truth. It's the only way it's ever going to work. And what we do, what the Puritans did in the effort to develop these understandings, these doctrines, these principles and truths to build them up in our life and stimulate your understanding so you can grow out this root and that other root. You know what I'm saying? On this doctrine, that doctrine, get these things down into the soil. Build an understanding of the Word of God. You know, you can't just have little Bible stories only at night. You've got to build a root system if you're going to be strong in the Lord. You see, the Bible says we were once afar off. The Bible says we were wild and wicked and in need of being grafted in so many Statements in the Scriptures make this point. The Scriptures tell us, dear brothers and sisters, that the only way we ever get into the faith, we ever get into the right spot where we need to be so we can grow, you know, roots of righteousness, you've got to be in the right spot. You've got to be by that river where the Word of God is being preached. You have to be in the right spot. And the only way you'll ever get there is if you hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. Isaiah 30, verse 21. The reason why this is true is because we're all going our own way. We're all ahead of God. We're all charting our own course. We're all making our own journey. And you can do this, of course, as I'm intimating in a religious garb. You're doing your own thing. The reason, why should there be a voice behind us? The Bible says the good shepherd leads his sheep. Why isn't he in front of you leading you? Because it starts by a voice coming behind you because you're ahead of God telling you you're not in the right place. This is the right place to be. And I have to tell you from behind you because you're estranged from God. You're hostile. You're not waiting on the Lord. You're proud and you do your own thing. This is why we need the preaching of God's Word to arrest the pride of man. Let's pay a little more attention to what is being taught here in Colossians. I want to read verses 21 and 22 again. And you that were sometime alienated, that you were formerly estranged and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. In verse 22, we are given some of this spiritual rooting stimulation. Right in the context of presenting our need of being rooted and grounded, we get some of this stimulation just there in verse 22. Because what is being taught there is that a good man, by the name of the Lord Jesus, a good man named Jesus, paid a price with his body, as well as paved the path in his body, so that his enemies might be reconciled to him in heart and mind. Now, what I've just done is I've begun to catechize you. Are you okay with that method? Is that too bland, uninteresting, too trivial, too like, oh, we already know this? Or are you going to grow a root? Are you just looking for entertainment? Or you want to grow a root. So let me say again what we're being told. Verse 21 says, There are some bad people in the earth. They are against God. And all of us were in that number. You, 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 that go to church, you were alienated from God. You were estranged. You walked away from God. You were not in fellowship with God. You were not paying attention to God. You were not seeking God. You were hostile to God. And a good man, a good man, not a sinner, not just somebody who saw your plight and decided to come alongside and do some hero work. No, a good man paid the price with his body. In the body of his flesh, in his body, he paid a price for us to be reconciled. And he also paved the path by living the life and setting an example for us to follow. And he did all of this on behalf of those that were his enemies and were not even asking for this to be accomplished on their behalf. Peter says the same sort of thing. Listen to his language. For hereunto were you called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. That sort of suffering is not so much the expiatory, atoning suffering. That's just the active sufferings of Jesus' earthly life and ministry that leave us an example. This is paving the path for us to know what it is to walk with God and to live a holy life, to discover what kind of roots we're supposed to grow. He left us an example that we should follow in His steps who did no sin when He was reviled. He reviled not again. Grow that root. When He suffered, He threatened not. Grow that root. He committed Himself to him that judges righteously. Instead of taking matters into His own hand, grow that root so you can stand in time of trial. You follow what I'm saying? So what we're being told here, just like is being said in Colossians, that in the body of Jesus' flesh, He not only gave that body and paid a price with that body. He also paved the path of righteous living in that body. And so Peter sort of reverses the order, and he says, Christ suffered. He went through life and experienced the sufferings, the difficulties of life, to leave us an an example that you should follow in his steps. But then he goes on in verse 24, he says, Who his own self bear our sins, In his own body on the tree. You see? A good man, this is the nature of our salvation. This is the gospel that we embrace. This is why we worship God and love Jesus. This is why we're Christians. This is why we're attentive to His teaching. This is why we're concerned about pleasing Him and the need to grow roots of righteousness. Do you know why? Because when we were alienated and hostile to God, And we didn't ask for, want, or even interested in our own salvation. A good man took up our cause without us asking for it. And he suffered on our behalf through the difficulties and trials of life. And then he gave his body as a substitutionary atonement in order to reconcile us to God. And it is not amiss to point out that that same principle of activity is also represented by the Apostle Paul in his own life. And thereby, he's saying, another reason for you to be concerned about growing roots of righteousness and getting them through listening to the preached word is because it's not just the good man, the perfect man, the exemplar, are, the exemplar of all of us who lived a good life and suffered to help you to grow roots. Paul is saying of himself, I'm a preacher and I suffer many things for the body of Christ to help them to grow roots. In other words, none of us would be where we need to be unless there was Jesus Christ, the only truly good man who suffered in his body both through the trials of life and in his case in a substitutionary expiatory propitiation known as crucifixion, giving His life so we could pay the price that we owe through our sins so we could be reconciled to God. We who were alienated, sometimes afar off from God, now we can be reconciled and made nigh unto God. This is why Roots of Righteousness are so important because you're not in that spot. When you got born again, you weren't in that spot. You had no roots. Amen? You, 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 get, you get evangelized week after week after week. You don't have any roots. You weren't, you weren't in relationship with God. You don't have the root system, in other words. We need to be taught in order to establish those roots. We were sheep that had gone astray, everyone to his own way. And God laid on a good man Not one who was alienated, not one who was hostile to God. A good man came to to reconcile us, to redeem us, to save us. A good man came, and our iniquities were put upon his shoulders. You know, David, the psalmist, he is presented as an exemplary shepherd who cares for his flock, even to the risk of his own life. You remember when the sheep were threatened by a lion and a bear? David saw that threat. And he stirred himself and he took a hold of the lion and the bear and he destroyed them. But in keeping with what we're talking about here, do you realize that David, though presented as an exemplary shepherd and of course writing Psalm 23, there is an infinite distinction between he and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the good shepherd and there is none good but one, he is the most excellent shepherd. And he knew that unlike David, when he faced the lion and the bear, he had to let the lion and the bear kill him in order to save the sheep. And that's what the Good Shepherd has done to save those of us who have gone astray. He knew that he would first have to die at the hands of the beast in order to save the lost sheep. So remarkable. Because he has the power to destroy the enemy in his own divinity. But this good shepherd, when he saw that we had all gone astray, and he saw how the lion and the bear were working their will in our lives, and he wants to change that situation, realizing that he has to be obedient unto death, and allow the lion and the bear to come after him, the good shepherd, and kill him. That is commitment that we have much to learn about. Because the scriptures say that He did this for sheep that didn't even like Him. Romans 5 says, when we were enemies, God reconciled us through the death of His Son. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5 that we were yet ungodly, and God sent His Son to redeem sinners. The Bible tells us that all we, like sheep, had gone astray. Everyone was going on his own way. And when we read about this in Isaiah 53, it's interesting that it starts with this question. Who would believe this report? And the report that follows is a report of someone who dies for his enemies while they are neither asking for nor interested in, and as a matter of fact, even mock him in the experience of giving his life on behalf of the astray sheep. There's this individual has all sorts of promise built into his being as he's born in the manger and growing up in Nazareth and he's growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. In verse 2 of Isaiah 53 it says, He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. That first part of Verse 2 is all the promise that is evident through the person Jesus Christ, this good man on the earth. And then there's this contrast that comes immediately after those words, and it says, He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. The question is, what happened to this one that had such promise, such prospects, built into His being? And the answer is, that He took on our sin. He borne the punishment that was due to us, we who are alienated enemies through wicked works. And while this was going on, verse 3 says, he was despised, he was thought little of, not appreciated, rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We hid our face from him while he's doing all of this on our behalf. We weren't even interested. He was despised and we esteemed him not. While Jesus was at work redeeming, The whole man, your whole body, spirit, and soul. As the language of verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our illnesses and carried away our sicknesses. But we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. We looked on him and said, Well, that sinner is probably getting what he deserves. He's being smitten of God. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace is what we're seeing in this basic teaching of the gospel that we who were alienated and enemies toward God are being drawn toward, are being introduced to so that we can be reconciled through the body of His flesh through death. That He may present us that this one, this good man that I've been describing to you who took up our cause when we were His enemy, when we despised and thought nothing of what He was doing, when he had no one supporting him. This one had such promise in his life, such greatness he could have had in his human ministry. But it ended by a physical presentation that nobody was interested in. He had no form that anybody cared about. He was despised and rejected. What I'm saying, dear brothers and sisters, is this is why it's so important that they who are part of the family of God, they who attend churches are hungry and thirsty and concerned about growing the roots of righteousness that will stabilize you so that you can grow to the measure of the stature and the fullness of Christ so you can be holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter 2, verse 24, Jesus in His own body, bear our sins on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live on to righteousness. That does not happen automatically. That implies you listen to the Word, you receive the milk of the Word, you receive the meat of the Word, you receive this engrafted Word, and you are growing roots of righteousness like Psalm 1, and you are, according to verse 25, you are... That sheep that was astray that is now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. I finish our introductory section in this Roots of Righteousness teaching by asking you, what does it mean to be a returned sheep? We who were astray, we who were alienated, we who had no root system that was righteous and grounded in God. Amen? We who were the wicked and tossed to and fro and in despair and always at our wits end and not even crying on to the Lord except His Spirit draw us. Nobody comes to Jesus unless the Father who sent Him draws them. I'm asking you, what does it mean to be a returned sheep? And I'm going to tell you in the simple language of Jesus Himself. And when I tell you this, This says, all you need to know about why you should be taught his word so that you can be grounded and settled in the faith. A returned sheep will hear the shepherd's voice and will learn it well enough and get it down into his or her soul deep enough that you will not follow a stranger, but you will follow Jesus through roots of righteousness implanted in you through the preached word.